welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And uh, today, dear listeners, we are on chapter 33 of Exodus, and we're going to do things a little differently. We're not going directly to Midrash today. We are going to spend some time with Maimonides, um, and also our our reading from this chapter aligns with current events in a way that is almost startling. So we'll also have a little bit of discussion at the top about what's going on in Israel right now. Um, Daniel, should we, should we just leap in? Yeah. You know, I, when I was reading this chapter in preparation uh, for today, the, the first verse of 33 is, then the Lord said to Moses, set out from here, you and the people that you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, uh, to your offsprings will I give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I, it just struck me, right, the, the story that Jews classically told ourselves, I don't know, 100 years ago even 70 years ago was that Israel was a land without a people for a people without a land. Hmm. And it struck me that in some ways that was the story in Exodus right here, right? right? That it's a version of a narrative where the people who are already living there are not important and don't have sort of a fundamental rights there. Um, and, you know, at some level, I think this is also the narrative that I know from Palestinians, in reverse, uh, which is to say that the Jews uh, uh, don't have a historical origin in Israel and don't uh, have a, a sort of historical claim uh, to that area as a homeland. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all that is to say that what's happening in Israel right now is tragic. Right. So what's happening, um, just in case anyone doesn't know, is that the American embassy has been moved to Jerusalem, and at the exact moment when there were opening ceremonies in Jerusalem, uh, there were uh, protesters at the border, Palestinian protesters, and the Israeli army fired upon them, and at least 60 are dead. Um, so... Are we? Should we draw a line between the Palestinians and the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, or is that a false equivalency? You know, I don't know. I don't know how far we want to push the metaphor. Um, but I, you know, look, Gaza is tragic. It's amongst the most tragic places in the whole world, I think. Um, so, just a little bit of a note: there were sixty people who were killed that day. This is actually part of uh, a series of ongoing protests. I think it's been going on for about six weeks now. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are some reports and estimates that say that by the year 2022, Gaza will not be livable. Wow. Why? Uh, I just read something that, you know, Gaza in the last however many years has gone from almost everyone having access to clean, reliable water to 10% or so of the people having access to clean, reliable water. Um, you know, it's a it's a place that has been abandoned in a profound sense. Uh, you know, it, it's not actually a part of Israel. Uh, in 19, prior to 1967, Gaza Strip was a part of Egypt. Uh, though technically it didn't belong to Egypt either. Uh, they were in violation of UN agreements by being there, but 
No one really complained. Uh, and after the 67 war, it became a part of Israel or it became occupied by Israel. It was not annexed by Israel either internally nor by the international community. Um, but for years and years and years, there were Jewish communities, Jewish settlements that were built in the Gaza Strip as well. Uh, then back in either 05 or 06, uh, with Ariel Sharon, he withdrew all of the settlements from Gaza. Uh, and basically, Israel has told itself a story since then that Gaza is no longer its responsibility other than these wars that keep happening. Huh. Um, but so the reality is Gaza is not independent that uh, Israel and Egypt control all of its ports and all of its entry and exits. Uh, there's a whole, uh, I don't know, 100, 200 meter strip running along the Gaza Strip that uh, Israel actively monitors with its military. And um, it's, I don't know that Israel is the prison guard, certainly not the sole prison guard, but the Gaza Strip, I think it's fair to say, is an enormous open air prison for millions of human beings. Wow. And, and it's becoming unlivable because no one is maintaining the infrastructure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a failed state. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the critiques and, uh, people should know, by the way, I tend to be, uh, to the left of most mainstream American Jews when it comes to Israel, uh, though not to the far left. I would, I would call myself in the center left probably, um, but a profound sense, it's like Sudan or something. Uh, so back in, I think it was 06, the Americans, uh, under George W. Bush presidency insisted on the Palestinians having an election. Mm -hmm. Uh, there had been a lot of fear about this because there was some fear that they would elect Hamas as their leadership, which they did. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the ways that this has been really radically misunderstood, uh, both by Israelis and Americans is that the election for Hamas was not that everyone was declaring that they supported a terrorist group. The thing is that Hamas actually provides most of the governmental infrastructure, particularly in Gaza. Uh, Hamas are the ones who get your kids medicine when they need it. Hamas are the ones who get repairs done. Uh, Hamas are social services. Uh, and in that sense, the election was really a vote against the corruption of the PLO uh, Arafat's, uh, and yep. Arafat's party at that point, uh, yep. in favor of good government, uh, whether or not Hamas has provided good government, I think, uh, is a different discussion, but. Right. Well, obviously if it's going to be unlivable soon, uh, one could question the amount of good government going on there. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, now from Israel's perspective, you know, the Israeli narrative goes something like this, that Israel left the Gaza Strip in 0506, that they were getting ready to leave the West Bank. And what happened? Hamas took over Gaza and literally tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of rockets uh, have been sent from the Gaza Strip into Israel proper. Uh, wow. You know, I, I will I will never forget being in Jerusalem uh, and just getting home from studying uh, and hearing the air raid sirens going off. And I had no idea what to do. I went and ripped my children. I mean, my son was three then. My girls were one uh, from their beds. And we went and this is such a sign that I'm a Midwesterner. Uh, we sat in the shower. Huh. Because like, what do you do for a rocket? I don't know right. what to do for a tornado. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
so those rockets are real too, and they keep happening. And this protest that's happening in Gaza right now is real and it's awful. And God, those people should, they deserve none of this. Um, but the flip side is these protests are not peaceful protests either. Yeah. Uh, you know, some estimates say there are 40,000 Gazans at the border, uh, actively attempting to break through the border, uh, and with the support of Hamas and saying that their goal is to go into Israel and blow things up and kill people, uh, which has been, uh, a reoccurring theme, uh, right. It was, uh, just a few years ago when they discovered all these underground tunnels that Hamas had built, uh, from Gaza into Israel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you hear stories of people who, uh, would hear this weird rumbling underneath their home and only later discovered that it was a Hamas tunnel being dug underneath them so that people could sneak in and blow up buses and so on. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think how this could bring us back to this chapter of Exodus. I, I guess one question I have, Daniel, is uh, one of the theories about what really happened in with the establishment of agent, ancient Israel was that there were this like, these kind of religious followers of somebody maybe named Moses who were hill people in and around the land of Cana. And um, the story of the Exodus itself is a, um, an origin story that they developed to explain why they were different from everyone else. And that they gradually gained strength in the hills and then came down. But but um, I think it's fair to say that they were near cousins of the people living there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I guess the version of the story that I tell, uh, it's very similar to that other than I think there probably really was an exodus. Uh-huh. I don't think it was on the scale that we're talking about. Uh, but these people, by the way, I don't, that's different than, stories of Moses. Um, but in terms of a slave rebellion from Egypt that made their way into the hills, there seems, that seems believable. Uh, but what happens is generations go by and all of a sudden, you know, you have one grandparent who was, uh, a part of that slave rebellion or one great grandparent. And it's just a core part of your story. It's the story you tell about yourself. Right. Um, you know, in that sense, it's not so different from, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who are really proud of their Irish heritage or something, and maybe one great grandparent was Irish, but, uh, it's the story that you tell about yourself more than, uh, sort of genetics or history, uh, that really matter here, which yeah. maybe brings us right back to the Palestinian Israeli conflict, right? Um, that one of the fundamental problems here is that there are two peoples who tell, two different stories that do not intersect. Is there any way out of this or are we just stuck with competing narratives uh, forever? You know, I, I'll tell you this sense of, I don't have any sense of progress in terms of peace in the Levant. I, I unfortunately have no, no optimism uh, or great hope there. Uh, but where I, do have optimism and where I do see progress is I see more and more people who are less interested in arguing over which narrative is right and more interested in 
understanding the narrative of the other and helping the other understand their own narrative. Uh, yeah, that's you, optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that's actually my original connection to the Episcopal Diocese was I was in Jerusalem at a program that brought together uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, uh, clergy people uh, uh, of all of them. And that was the explicit goal, was to learn each other's narratives, not to talk through what is the truth. Yeah, okay. Um, it, and it allows for relationships to be built in a way that uh, conflicting truths doesn't. Right. Also, like in a non-narrative way, I, I think this is happening uh, with Buddhism maybe too. Uh, you know, because I... I read a lot of poetry and I'm reading now a book of poetry that's mostly Buddhist, but the, the ways it intersects with Christianity are really interesting. And I think like American religion itself, at least in terms of ideas is synchronizing a whole bunch of different things. And maybe it's helpful that they don't have to be about narratives of who we are as a people. Mm. They can be about ideas and practices. I really like this. Uh, this is a teaching that comes from Daniil Hartman. Uh, it was a great new book called Putting God Second. Uh, but he talks about pluralism versus tolerance. Yeah. And that we tend to think that pluralism is the thing that's important. Uh, and that actually it's tolerance. That pluralism requires pluralists. Everyone has to be a pluralist because pluralism is uh, in agreement that says that I don't have the whole truth and you don't have the whole truth. And so we are going to come together and celebrate our partial and relative truths uh, and the beauty within each of them. Yeah, I, I like that, except I remember when Phyllis Spiegel was on the podcast back in early winter, she expressed a hatred of the term tolerance because it seems to imply uh, mere tolerance. So, yeah. So, so for me instead, right. So if that's pluralism, Tolerance is saying, I'm not sure that there's anything that you're saying that's right or true, but I still want to hear it. And I still think it's important. And I still think that there should be space made for it. Uh, yeah, I, I see that. But I, I guess my hope would be to say, oh, my story makes sense because of your story, right? Like um, my understanding of God and the nature of the world and everything makes sense because of yours. Like I, I'm not, for me, I don't think it's enough simply to say, oh, I want to hear it, but it's, I, I'm always looking for transformation, right? Like I want something transformative to happen because I heard that thing, because I understood mm. that new thing. And maybe the transformative thing that happens uh, is threatening to my old way of thinking. Um, but then that's on me to kind of let it go. <laughs> Actually in Daniil's framework, those are only the first two categories. He then has a category he calls acceptable deviance and unacceptable deviance. Ah, okay. Uh, and I, I actually like this framework in terms of thinking about the world. Uh, right. I, I use, um, racism as an example sometimes. Uh huh. That there are absolutely views that are considered unacceptably deviant when it comes to expressing racism. Right now, where we draw that line might be different. Where you draw that line, where I draw that line, uh, both of us are uh, uh, white people. Where a person of color might draw that line might be different. Where a woman might draw that right. Everyone draws that line 
differently, but we, but we use these categories. Uh, but then there is, for each of us, acceptable deviance too, right? There, there are the uh, racist things that politicians say or that our uncle says or that whomever says that we recognize as being deviant and fundamentally unacceptable, but still uh, within the realm of the normal. Uh, you know, I think, I think a lot about our politics with this and I think a lot of the, uh, racist dog whistling of, uh, you know, the Southern strategy with Nixon and things like that, that was acceptable deviance for the vast majority of at least, uh, mainstream political white America, uh, Republican or Democrat alike. And to me, I think one of the crises we're in today is there are a number of us who see uh, some of some of the current political situation as being unacceptably deviant, uh-huh. uh, while a huge another section of us sees it as being, uh, at the very least, sort of a category of tolerance, right. uh, or pluralism, even or whatever the equivalent is there. Um, so, anyways, bit of a tangent there, but yeah, yeah, well. So there might be a way out eventually is what we're trying to get to. We're looking for hope. We're, we're saying this is not necessarily going to always be caught up in these two competing narratives. Um, maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Anyway. I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to the situation there these days. Um, uh, yeah. And, and we don't want to get too far away from Exodus. But just to say, part of the narrative we've had so far is about welcoming the stranger and taking people in. So, so people who disagree with you are not always treated with violence and suspicion. Totally. And in this narrative, the Exodus narrative that we're reading now. Um, so there is at least a consideration of another way buried within the text. So one last note here, uh, which connects to Exodus then, uh, which is that I think there's a reckoning happening amongst American Jews right now where we told ourselves a story about Israel for a generation or two, understandably, I think, after the Holocaust, uh, where Israel was going to be the most moral country in the world. And we were going to take all of these grand notions of Jewish ethics that we had developed through 2,000 years of uh, victimization and powerlessness, and we were going to be a light unto the world. And tragically, what we've discovered is that we, Jews and Israel are just like everyone else. Yeah. Always sad to discover that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's causing a real reckoning for American Jews who held Israel up on a pedestal. Israel is the most moral army in the world. Israel is the most whatever. And, you know, what do those things mean? I don't even know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we should, we should keep going here. Um, verse three, I believe we're at. Verse three. But I shall go up in your midst, for you are a stiff-necked people, lest I put an end to you on the way. So God is saying, I'm going to go with you to keep an eye on you. Oh, yeah, we've got a, a change, though, in the uh, uh, verses here, it looks like. I have a land flowing with milk and honey as a part of verse 3. Ah, interesting, interesting. Okay. Uh, by uh, the way, milk and honey, we are talking about goat's milk and date honey. Ooh, Delicious. Uh, yeah, there's a, you'll see, if you look out for it, uh, in places, you'll see sort of these classic pictures of a goat climbing a 
palm tree reaching up with like a date hanging down and almost dripping into the goat's mouth. And for almost none of us do we look at that and think, oh, the Holy Land. But that's the exact image. It's uh, the land of milk and honey. And we've just totally lost that symbol. That is cool. That so you're saying it's not a German cow in a, a beehive? No, though actually they just discovered uh, cultivated uh, bee honey in Israel from a time period that would be biblical, and so it's totally upending everyone's theories. No one thought there was cultivated honey yet, huh? And yet there is. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, verse four, and the people heard this evil thing and they mourned. So the evil thing is that the driving out of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, or is that the fact that God is going with them in their midst? No, neither of those things. What is it then? Uh, you're forgetting we're right after the golden calf. Yes. So the evil thing is the golden calf. The golden, this terrible sin that's been committed. Okay. Um, and this becomes the greatest sin, uh, for Judaism. Right, right. The the original sin, but not really. Um, going on, and none of them put on their jewelry. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If but a single moment I were to go up in your midst, I would put an end to you. And now put down your jewelry from upon you, and I shall know what I should do with you. And the Israelites stripped themselves of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. So a prohibition against wearing jewelry? Uh, yeah. You know, this is a marker of mourning, too. Don't forget of all those people that just died. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. So they enter or they continue on to the Holy Land in mourning. Huh. Uh, yeah. It's also, you know, I think a reproachment. Uh, these people who are constantly complaining, oh, we don't have enough food, we don't have enough to drink, we don't have whatever, like, yeah, and you're doing it with your furs and your diamonds on. Right. Right. Uh, I I find that interesting, though, that they might be mourning as they come into this land because uh, it feels pretty true of experience that we look forward to something and work towards something. And then our actual emotional reaction to it happening is sometimes one of loss. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So verse seven, and Moses would take the tent and pitch it for himself outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And so whoever sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so when Moses would go out to the tent, all the people would rise and each man would station himself at the entrance of his tent and they would look after Moses until he came to the tent. And so when Moses would come to the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stand at the entrance of the tent and speak with Moses. And all the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent and all the people would rise and bow down each man at the entrance of his tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his fellow and he would return to the camp, and his attendant Joshua, son of Nun, a lad, would not budge from within the tent. And all this brings us to Maimonides. Yeah, so this, right, this is one of the most sort of classic images of Moses, is that what was distinctive about Moses, and I think this is how Deuteronomy ends, right? Uh, that Moses was the greatest of the prophets and the last to, uh, in, in the only one to speak to God, uh, panim el panim, face to face. Uh-huh, right. Um, and in, in the Hebrew, you have this very physical quality because panim, the face, it's, uh, a plural word. 
So it's it's all the pieces of your face, right? The, the two cheeks and the nose and the so on. And so there is this very physical quality to even the language itself, like cheeks pressed together. Um, huh. There's an intimacy that comes across here. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder his face would be shining. Yeah. Okay. So, but you, you yourself don't ha- really have this image of God. Um, and, and you turn to Maimonides, sorry. And you turn to Maimonides, uh, to explain another way to think about what's happening. So let, let's read a few more verses first. I think that'll be helpful okay. for us. Um, okay. Uh, by the way, Joshua bin Noon. Bin Noon. Noon. Okay. So son of Noon, not son of nuns. Son of Noon. Exactly. That's good because nuns are not really supposed to have sons. <laughs> Terrible little joke there. Okay, anyway, going on. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. Yet you, you have not made known to me whom you will send with me. And you, you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my eyes. And now, if pray, I have found favor in your eyes. Let me know, pray, your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your eyes. And see, for this nation is your people. Uh, okay, let's pause for a second. So first, if we go back to verse 12 with this whole Joshua bin Nun thing. Was it 12? 11? Yeah. Uh, 11. 11. Yeah. Right, we, we know the end of this story, which is that Joshua becomes Moses' political successor. Uh-huh. Uh, and it feels like we're about to get that story here, right? Yeah. And then it doesn't go there. But No, no. He's, he's being hinted at as we go along. Uh, this is foreshadowing. Yes. Yes. I can hear, uh, uh, Mrs. Singer, my ninth grade English teacher being proud of that word right there. Oh, well, there we go. That's where I learned it. Not from her, but ninth grade. Anyway. Um, okay. But he's also, this is, he's arguing with God again. Like in the last chapter, he was kind of arguing with God and saying, spare the people. Now he's saying, let me really know you. Right. Yeah. We, we had a midrash last week from Sinai that we didn't actually look at that talks about that this arguing with God was so intense that Moses actually uh, uh, grabbed God by the lapel and sort of picked up God and refused to let go until God agreed to uh, uh, forgive the Israelites. Uh, That's a little like uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. Yeah, totally. Totally. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. So uh, forced relationship with God, forced blessing from the angel. Yes. We are, human beings are pushy, man. No wonder God is fed up. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that is the understanding of what the word Israel means. Ones who wrestle with God. Yep. That's right. Okay. So here, here Moses is then fulfilling the title of Israel or Israelite. Um, should I go on or are we ready to get into Mamadis? So we're getting a personal request here, right? From yeah. Moses. Uh, yes. I singled you out by, no, no, where are we? Uh, oh, verse 13, right? Now, if I've yep. truly gained your favor, pray, let me know your ways that I might know you and continue in your favor. Uh, consider too, that this nation is your people, right? It's really an afterthought here that mentions the people. He, Moses wants to know. <laughs> so... <laughs> What's the the Hebrew would be shot? Like, what's the surface level? What's what's the obvious understanding of what Moses is asking here? I don't know. It sounds like he's asking for a confirmation of his, his authority in some way. Like, I'm I'm in this position. I'm going out to this tent every day. I'm supposed to speak for you. 
you got to level with me, man. <laughs> he, suddenly he seems like a, like a press secretary to a dishonest president. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Not to push it too far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me know your ways that I might know you and continue in your favor. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's a little worried that he's going to get in trouble. That's clear. Yeah. But maybe you had something else in mind. What, what, what do you think is going on here? So, you know, I, I think the first thing here is that, uh, this is such, such a physical, uh, physical description, uh, right. In fact, we will go on, uh, uh, and as we get to, uh, uh, verse, what is it? 22, uh, finally Moses convinces God to let him see something. And God says, you know, you can't see my face and live. Uh, so Moses says, uh, or God agrees to, I will just show you my backside. I will pass before you and you can see my backside. Uh, uh-huh. by the way, this is probably one of the great tushy jokes of the Bible. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, we miss those jokes, right? Uh, we totally, we turn this into scripture and we like forget that there are funny lines in here too. Right. Uh, right. But so this is such a physical description and Maimonides, he's this, uh, philosopher from the golden age of Muslim Spain, a Jewish philosopher about a thousand years ago. We've talked about him a lot, uh, also known as Rambam. He's really uncomfortable with the idea of a God who looks like humans. Uh, so he, what he does is he totally reimagines or he redefines all of this. Uh, he says, what is Moses asking for when Moses says that he wants to know God's ways so that he can know God? Uh, Maimonides first comment is that, uh, this teaches us that the only way to know God is to know God's ways, which are God's attributes, which are God's actions. Uh, which is to say that if you want to understand God, Maimonides is saying, you have to understand science. Right. You read the book of nature, as we've talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. And this certainly is compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the uh, God that I believe in. Uh, the, The physical God of the Bible, it doesn't feel comfortable to me. Yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if I totally concur. Um, little side story: we, I went bird watching with some friends, my daughter and I did a few weeks ago, and the the guy who was leading it, the birder, said that bird song is mostly uh, territorial. Like the birds are just kind of warning each other off each other's territory. Um, and so I kind of went away thinking birds are jerks, you know, <laughs> like, like they're very possessive. They're just trying to hold on to things, etc. cetera. Uh, it was a little of a like nature red and tooth and claw moment, you know, and, and there is a way of reading science, which would say that everything is destructive and it's all about power and control. Um, and so to me, you know, science, uh, the problem with like, equating God with science is that science is not ethical in any way. So I don't think that's what Maimonides means here. Okay. Uh, you know, first of all, it's worth the word he probably would have used, by the way, would not be science, but would be philosophy. Uh-huh. We just don't use that word anymore in the same way. Uh, right. Cause you've broken philosophy up into separate categories. Yeah. And what we forget is that, 
what was long considered natural philosophy, we now call science. Right. Uh, so what I would say is that I am not sure that Maimonides uh, and certainly not contemporary Jewish thinkers who der- are derived from Maimonides would look at ethics as being separate from science. Um, you know, let, let me give you an example here. I think for much of American society, uh, understanding that your sexuality is not under your control, whether you are attracted to someone of uh, a similar gender or a different gender or whatever that is for you, that that being gay, being straight, being lesbian, being bisexual, whatever uh, uh, people identify as, understanding that this is not a choice has radically changed how we uh, understand the ethics of this, right? Yeah. Uh, For thousands of years, people said, no, it is wrong. This is a morally wrong thing to do. But the science here has illustrated the ethics. Uh, Yeah, I I guess I'm I'm hesitating in my mind. because I, I think there are also people who are looking for kind of greater sense of gender freedom who, who want to push against that and say, you know, maybe, but that's kind of beside the point. The point is you, should, you can be attracted to who you're attracted to and you can be the gender you want to be. And, you know, once we tie it all to like scientific essentialism, then we are, again, just kind of pushing people into these narrow categories that we have said are okay. So I'm not suggesting scientific essentialism. Um, okay. I'm suggesting that uh, the more we understand about the world, the more we understand about what is right and wrong as well. Uh, yeah, okay. right? and, and I would actually say that sort of what you're saying is supportive of my point, which is that as we understand gender broadly to be uh, socially constructed, we can identify that social construction and then uh, remove the morality that's been applied to it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So in this case, like the fact that there are gay penguins or there are giraffes who have been seen to engage in homosexual acts, right? We would want to put labels on them and say homosexual, heterosexual, but they're just giraffes. They're just penguins. They're doing what they do. And we look at that and we can say, oh, maybe, maybe we too are like that. Exactly. And within the scope of what Maimonides would mean as science and what I mean as science here, uh, being able to recognize that the categories we create, gay, straight, man, woman, black, white, whatever categories we're talking about, that they are made up categories and are not essential categories, right? They don't actually exist in nature. Uh, That being able to recognize that changes how we understand the ethical implications of those things. Well, it takes us back to what we were saying at the beginning of our conversation about conflicting stories. Uh, You know, what does a story do? It establishes identity for us and for the group we belong to. And you're saying that um, science or natural uh, philosophy presents us with a different story than we've had. So our story is changing as it comes into contact. Yeah, I I think we can think of ethics as a branch of science in this way, or again, this is why the word philosophy really works better for Maimonides, uh, in the sense that 
we recognize that uh, doing awful things to people who identify as gay was always immoral, right? It, it was always immoral for us to forcibly uh, make gay men undergo electric shock therapy. It was always immoral, even though at the time the understanding of ethics said that uh, it was actually the, the gay men who were doing something unethical, right? Ethics in that sense always was true. It's just that we're understanding, as we understand the world more and more, we're understanding ethics more and more, and it allows us to get closer to ethical truth. They'll probably never actually get there in the same way that understanding the natural world allows us to get closer to scientific truth. They'll never actually get there. Um, sure. Sure. Although I say, <laughs> so I, I don't know why I'm pressing back against this. No, no, bit. press away. Um, but I, I would say, who was it? Was it uh, Hillel who said, you know, and also Jesus, you know, who said the 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 sum of the Torah is uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Yes. Just stand on one foot and say it. Like that is the heart of the ethics, and um, that is a, a powerful statement because it means not only. Um, don't love your neighbor less than yourself. It also says don't love your neighbor more than yourself. And you and I are this, we're sharing the things we've been reading. I've been reading Rene Girard who talks about uh, rivalry. And if we promote our neighbor over ourselves, then we become jealous of them and then are pushed towards violent action uh, against them. But basically I'm saying, yes, there is an ethics we can read from nature, but I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily more potent or profound than the ethics we got through scripture, <laughs> which, you know, one part of me is like, I am resisting calling it revealed truth because I don't really think it's like God wrote it, but I do feel like it was there from those, you know, it came from kind of profound patient religious study and thought about human beings and what we are and how we can get along well together in our cultures. Um, and I don't, I don't want in any way to set that aside for some other ethics. So right, the, the problem with that is, I think that is a selective reading of our past too. Well, yeah, right. Probably. I mean, how many people suffered for how many thousands of years because Leviticus 18.22 says a man shall not lay with a man as he does with a woman to do so as an abomination. Um, and how many minorities have been persecuted under the auspices of religious ethics and truth? Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a traditionalist who's trying to say the past is always good. I, I guess all I'm trying to say is maybe we need both these things, right? Maybe we need to look to natural philosophy and we need to look to uh, a kind of what I mean, I'm not sure what the uh, adjectival form of Maimonides would be, but you know, Maimonides understanding of God um, and, and say, that's good. And we can see the good in that. Um, but we can also sometimes see the good in other understandings of God. 
And maybe they're not in competition with and, each other. Maybe they could just sit side And now we side. bring it back, right? Pluralism uh, over no. tolerance. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that we can get closer to the ethical by expanding the breadth of the pieces that inform our ethics. That's right. Okay. So now we're in total agreement. Whew. I was worried there for a minute, Daniel, but I'm glad we got to this. You know, maybe this is uh, this has been a uh, uh, hour of tangent, so maybe this is a tangent we should save for another time. But one of the sort of fundamental questions that I've been wrestling with is: Do we have more in common as religious liberals than we do with our own religious fundamentalists of our own traditions? Uh, my answer would be clearly yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I have more in common with a, a Buddhist poet than I would do with the evangelical pastor or pastors who are at the em- embassy opening in mm. Jerusalem. By the um, way, I meant to mention this earlier, at, uh, but I, I think something really important for people to understand, at least when it comes to American Jews and everything that's happening with the embassy in Gaza is that, evangelicals, American white evangelicals were celebrating uh, two days ago when the embassy officially was moved. American Jews, by and large, felt highly, highly ambivalent at best. Uh, I saw a study that mm-hmm. said 16% of American Jews supported the move. Uh, and yeah, 50-something okay. percent of evangelicals, white evangelicals. That's amazing. That's amazing. Makes you wonder who it really is for. Yeah, right, because all of the... Um, all of the marketing around the Israel stuff is always that it's about being friends to Jews. That's not the reality of it. Uh, uh, Jews in America at least tend not to vote for conservatives and they tend not to vote for conservative Israel based policies either. Um, I want to kind of say something even a little further, which is, you know, I was thinking uh, yesterday about, uh, I believe her name was Hespasia, who was this uh, philosopher in Alexandria at the time that the Great Library of Alexandria was destroyed. And she was torn apart by um, Christian monks, these black-clad extremist monks who then went on to kind of ravage all of the ancient learning. And... Um, I, I have more in common with her, too, than I do with them, I think. Uh, so it's not just, like, current uh, liberals who I, who I feel uh, akin to. It's also um, people of the past who have been more about the question than about forcing their answers on other people. Mm. You know, th- there's a famous story in the Talmud of uh, Rabbi Elisha Benabuya, uh who becomes a heretic. They end up not even using his name. They just call him a the other, uh, right. What, a, what uh-huh. a great way of making it clear that you're otherizing someone, by the way, um, just call yeah, him other. No there's this great story where he, he was this great rabbinic teacher and he, uh, is once he's already become a heretic is riding a horse on the Sabbath. Uh, and, uh, which, which is a violation of the Sabbath. And yet he's being followed by his old students who are asking him for wisdom as he does. So, um, right. So this is, uh, yeah, okay. Anyway. Anyway. 
We're wandering very far, and we're nowhere near the end. Well, actually, we are pretty close to the end. Let's actually let's finish the chapter and then devote the last fifteen minutes yes. to the Madhvis, if that's okay with you. Uh, so we were on, I believe, uh, verse six. Please, you want to take us home? Okay. And Moses said to God, if your presence does not go, do not take us from here. And how then will it be known that I have found favor in your eyes, I and your people? Will it not be by your going with us that I and your people may be distinguished from every people that is on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, the thing too, which you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my eyes and I have known you by name. And he said, show me, pray your glory. And he said, I shall make all my goodness pass in front of you, and I shall invoke the name of the Lord before you, and I shall grant grace to whom I grant grace, and have compassion for whom I have compassion. And God said, You shall not be able to see my face, for no human can see me and live. And the Lord said, Look, there is a place with me, and you shall take your stance on the crag. And so when my glory passes over, I shall put you in the cleft of the crag and shield you with my palm until I have passed over. And I shall take away my palm and you will see my back, but my face will not be Right, there's the tushy joke. Yeah, yeah. So it's moving from cheek to cheek uh, to not no longer even being able to look at God's face. I, I'm sorry, I don't think we can... Uh, mention a tushy joke and then have you say cheek to cheek without pausing for uh, um, uh, appreciation of that accidental isn't, pun there. Isn't that what the old uh, jazz standard is about? <laughs> Dancing cheek to cheek? I, I always thought it made for a very odd looking dance, yep. but you know. Yep. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so let's get to Mamadis. So here we have a very anthropomorphic. So let, let me give you a different rabbinic this, tradition first, actually, I think you'll like. Uh, And we may have referenced this one uh, in weeks past. Uh, But so Maimonides totally rejects this anthropomorphization here. And we've got that within the text here too, by the way. There seems to be an argument happening within the Torah itself, right? Can you see God and live or not is also a argument over uh, God's anthropomorphism. Uh, But so if you read the Torah, right, you have God's backside. And the rabbis of the Talmud asked the question, what is it exactly that Moses saw? And their answer is that they saw the knot of the back of God's tefillin, these uh, uh, Jewish prayer boxes. Uh-huh. Shawls. No, no, no. These are oh, the, the English word that's used are phylacteries, but I don't think anyone knows what right. phylacteries are better than tefillin. Um, so Google tefillin, T-F-I-L-L-I-N, I guess. We have talked about them before on the podcast. Uh, They're boxes that you put on your forehead uh, and on your arm and uh, part of uh, spiritual practice every day. Uh, But anyways, the the one on your head has a knot in the back, and they say that that is what Moses saw is the knot of God's tefillin. And the rabbis say if God has tefillin, it means God was praying. Yeah. Uh, And then they go into a long discussion of what does God pray for? They also talk about who does God pray to. Uh, But the answer that they come to is that God prays that God's aspect of mercy override God's aspect of justice. Um, But a totally different read than Maimonides, right? This is a a very, very physical God here. This is a God who doesn't just live, but actually prays. Well, and the prayer is kind of an argument within God's self. Uh, 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 argument between 
mercy yes. and justice. Okay. All right. Okay. So that is, that is an interesting rabbinic read. And I, I, it, well, as so many things, it raises more questions than it answers really, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, if we want to turn it into a concrete, coherent philosophy, it's problematic. If we just want to appreciate yeah. uh, the beauty of a, in the sense of a rabbinic sermon, uh, arguing that the core prayer should be that mercy overrides justice. There's something beautiful there. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, but Maimonides is having none of it. So take us through. Take us through. Our poor listeners have just yes, been waiting Maimonides for, having for of it. 40 minutes uh, now. So, you know, yeah. the first thing to understand about Maimonides is uh, that he takes the idea of God's oneness extremely seriously. Uh, and he recognizes that we are uh, people who live with diversity. Uh, there's a different Carl today than the Carl that existed yesterday or two weeks ago or 20 years ago. Or five minutes or five ago, minutes for that ago right? Uh, <laughs> we're a, right. We, we change, but even beyond the change, we are made up of pieces that can be divided, whether you're talking about our organs and our physical structure or even just our attributes, right? We are smarter or less smart. We are taller or shorter. We are all of these different things uh, that uh, are, are diversity. But if we're going to take very seriously this notion that God is one, then God can't change. Because something that is one definitionally cannot change. Uh, that change would imply a diversity. There's a different God today than there was five minutes ago. Uh, um. Although part of our story so far in Exodus has been God changing God's mind. So plus different names totally. for God. So I, I'm just, just putting a pin in that to say uh, philosophically, this seems uh, consistent, but in terms of scripture, it's, it doesn't actually follow what's in yes, the scripture. Yes. My mind is actually his, his great book, the guide for the perplexed. The whole first of the three books is a dictionary where he takes all of these words and totally redefines them. Uh, so being made in the image of God, uh, he pays attention to the grammar of it and says, ah, actually what this is, is being made in the same essence of God, the ability to be creative. Huh. Um, okay. So anyways, Maimonides takes this oneness so seriously that he says that we as people who live and change have nothing in common with something that is truly one. Uh, and so there are no words that we can use to describe the deity uh, that are not themselves lies. Uh, so he uses the example, he says that uh, whenever we do something kind or merciful, uh, we, we understand that there is this emotion that is behind it. And so we look out at God and we look, for instance, at uh, Maimonides says the embryo growing inside of the womb uh, or the way that parents naturally, uh, hopefully care for their young uh, and guard them. That we look at these things and say, these are signs of God's mercy. And similarly, we look at uh, when awful things happen, earthquakes uh, and fires and natural disasters. Uh, Maimonides lost his brother in a uh, accident at sea. Uh, and we look out at these things and we say, these are God's wrath because if we were going to do something destructive, it would be because of 
our ref. Right. And that fundamentally all we are doing is applying our own reality to God. And it is a reality that does not match that God does not have wrath. All we're doing is interpreting God's, uh, creation or interpreting natural events as wrath, because that's how we would feel. Uh, God does not actually love, uh, because that is change and that is human. Uh, and that what we've really done then is created a very human God. Uh, I always like to say that for Maimonides, the idea that God is loving or vengeful is, is as absurd as the idea that God is 15 pounds overweight. Uh, I think I mm -hmm. even said that on the podcast before, you know, this is to me a core idea. Um, so that's Maimonides right there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this particular section of Exodus is one of those places where Maimonides needs to redefine yes. what's going on. Yes. So if we look to the guide for the perplexed, we see, um, that redefinition, the knowledge obtained by Moses has not been possessed by any human being before him or after him. His petition to know the attributes of God is contained in the following words. Show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight. Consider how many ex excellent ideas found expression in the word. Show me the way that I may know thee. We learn from them that God is known by God's attributes. For Moses believed that he knew God when he was right, the only way of knowing God is to study creation. Right. Right. And, and not, um, there is something in terms of language, there is something active in this. So not a static creation. No, no. Uh, it, though Maimonides, you know, his understanding of Moses here from this is that when Moses asks to see God's ways, that Moses is asking to understand the universe. And fundamentally what he's saying is that Moses in that moment became the most knowledgeable scientist who has ever lived or knowledgeable philosopher might be the better word. Um, Renaissance man, that he understood the universe that, that when Moses was asking to uh, show me your ways, what he really wanted to know was e equals MC squared. Uh-huh. He saw it all. And it he all saw it all and it all made sense. Exactly. The underlying truth of it all. Um, or as close as any human can get, because even Maimonides says that, that, that Moses couldn't ever see God's face. He can only see God's backside. And that's Rambam, Maimonides' understanding that what that means is all you can have is relative truth. You can't ever have absolute truth. You can't actually see God's face. Um, because we are limited. Yeah. No matter and there's what. the metaphor, by the way, that's, that's how he redefines it is that's, that's the metaphor that, uh, seeing God's face is knowing absolute truth and seeing God's backside is the request for relative truth within our universe. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, one part of me really likes this, uh, because it is humble in a way that that mitigates against, uh, bullying fundamentalism. <laughs> uh, and, and one part of me finds it a little wanting. I'm of two minds. I, I feel that too, right? The, uh, um, I mean, the beauty of this to me, uh, it's worth remembering that for the Bible uh -huh. and for Maimonides, the very worst sin that you can commit is idol worship. And yeah. the beauty of this as a theology is that 
anyone who claims that they have the truth is definitionally an idolater. And I right. find that very powerful. Right. I do too. That I like. Um, uh, but I want, I, I want a wide uh, arena in which to seek truth. Yeah, I don't think Maimonides would disagree with that. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't think he Good. would disagree that, with that at all. Uh, right? This is a man who is a natural philosopher, an astronomer, a physician, a legal thinker, uh, a codify. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think he understood truth from a variety of sources here. Uh, you know, the, the downside to me, and I think of my teacher of a blessed memory, David Hartman, I mentioned his son, Daniil, in his book today, but uh, David Hartman, who was really my first teacher of Maimonides, uh, David Hartman, who, who really believed this, he was a rationalist in, in this tradition. He was dying of pretty severe Parkinson's. And he talked about how he had no God to hold him during his suffering. And he, he had become because, such a rationalist because, that there was no room for this God that could comfort him and walk with him. Right. The God who he understood does not have arms <laughs> to hold with. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I hear that. I also think it is entirely possible to have a different conception of God and still feel God's absence and suffering. And then maybe, maybe that's even worse. You know, maybe it's in a sense of betrayal. Like, why are you not here? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I love Maimonides because I was never able to believe any of the theologies that I heard. I really wanted to, but I just, they felt like clothes that didn't fit me. And Maimonides created an authentic way of being in relationship with the divine that wasn't about belief. Right. Well, so uh, uh, Marcus Borg talks about the word belief and says, you know, in English, we think of it as an intellectual proposition, but what it really means is just giving your heart to something. So I kind of, in my own faith, I live day by day, not really knowing what I intellectually understand. Um, but I know that I've given my heart to the entire process of asking the question, (laughs) And so I can say, you know, I believe all sorts of things, some of which are entirely contradictory, and it's because I am deeply engaged with them and can't let them go, um, but I'm not forcing them to become propositions which I can intellectually mm-hmm. assent mm-hmm. to. You know, I think I've gotten there, actually, uh, mm. and it didn't used to be. Yeah. Uh, and right. since Maimonides became yeah, a step either. for me rather than a destination. Yeah. Yeah, which all things ultimately really are. You know, they're just steps. Like, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, as a Christian, I, I you know, I think, like, I, the the one true teacher is Jesus. Okay, that said, then I look at Scripture and I'm like, well, he says almost nothing about his resurrection after his resurrection, which is recorded. You know, he's with the disciples until the ascension, and we're not given any any teachings from that time, at least not in, in the um, canonical gospels. Um, and it's weird. 
you know, it's weird uh, that that is missing, that that is absent. Um, so I can say, you know, like the, the, the one teacher I can really, you know, assent to the teachings of, I'm not given a whole bunch mm. of teachings from, what do I make of that? What do, what do I do with that fact? Right. And I, you know, it may be that there aren't a whole lot of teachings there because of exactly what we've been talking about, you know, like it's not important that we be told or know with certainty. It's more that our eyes be directed to the right places to ask the questions and that that's the, the, and the you bring us back to our very first uh, podcast, right? The story of the oven of Akhenai, uh, right? Yeah. This notion that the whole purpose of scripture was not to give us the answers, but to raise the questions. Right. Well, there we are, dear listeners, at the end of uh, chapter 33. We've got seven more chapters to go. We've asked pretty much every question we can possibly ask, but I'm sure there are a few more going forward. Uh, Daniel, do you have any final thoughts as we close out the podcast today? Nothing at all. Uh, you know, the only thing I'd say is I'll give a plug for uh, a new book by a teacher of mine, Yossi Klein Halevi, uh, called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Uh, Yossi wrote the best book on understanding contemporary Israel that I know of uh, uh, called Like Dreamers, which traced the uh, history of the 1967 war and how it led to the settlements and the current mess we're in. Uh, and this book is supposed to be even better and much more readable. Uh, so if you're trying to understand what is the internal narrative of Israel about itself, this is the way to understand it. All right. That is great. Uh, okay. And I, you know, I don't really have anything to plug. I'm happy it's spring, I'm even in. if it's raining. So, amen. All right. So I will talk to you next week. Uh, Daniel, have a great week. Bye.